Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. To Dangerous Minds, brought to you by Offscript. I'm Ed Stafford, the first person to walk the length of the Amazon River. I've always been fascinated by adventure travel. But is it an addictive, somewhat selfish escape, or could it be a powerful vessel for self-development? In this series, I'll be talking to some of the people I admire the most about why they do it, what they've learned, and what impact it has had on their lives. What does drive people to endure hardship while leaving those that they love to cope on their own at home? And is such risk-taking a reckless indulgence, or could it be a simple crucible in which one can resolve mental health issues and help find emotional balance in life? My guest today is The Real Deal, a world-class climber and adventurer. He's a veteran of a score of epic ascents, including Everest, but specialises in free climbing, i.e. without ropes, the most technical peaks and the biggest walls in the world. An experienced base jumper, he was at the forefront of pioneering para-alpinism, which is climbing up and then flying down. He beat Jeremy Clarkson to the top of Vernon Gorge for an episode of Top Gear when Clarkson was in an Audi RS4 and Leo was climbing. Ladies and gents, it's an utter privilege to introduce Leo Holding. Hello, mate. How are you? All right, Ed. Are you well? Yeah, we just had an amazing summer in the uh, Alps, cruising around in our pimped-up Volkswagen Crafter. We've upgraded to a bigger van. It's the way to go, mate. Really? I know you're a Land Rover man, but the vans are where it's at. Yeah, no, I, I had a camp. I had an old Ford camper van at one point, an old V4 Ford, which was a mess of a vehicle, but um, had painted flowers down the side of it and stuff like that. Nice. In my youth, obviously, um, <laughs> not, not today. You grew up in um, the Lake District and um, started climbing at the age of ten, I believe, um, and um, that was with your dad. Um, how much? How much did he um, influence your decision to to be a climber? Well, that's kind of the abbreviated version. The details are, as I just said, I kind of I'm not really from the Lake District. I'm from a place called the Eden Valley, um, which is just outside the national park, uh, but no one knows where it is, so I always say the Lake District. It's a rural area and it's in the foothills, it's in the Pennines. So there's there's hills and trees and countryside and rocks. And my dad actually wasn't a climber. He was a he was a keen outdoorsman. He was into fell walking and, and scrambling, right? Which is that grey area when you, you're not really hell walking anymore, but you're not quite rock climbing. But he was a friend of his that was a climber, someone that he used to work with. He's a, a cabinet maker and a joiner and one of his joiner mates um, I knew was a rock climber. And, uh, and it was actually my motivation. I kind of remember it when I was a kid. I, I think I'd seen something on TV maybe about climbing. Um, and climbing is one of those things that, I mean, it's a bit different now because of climbing walls. But back then, this is in the late 80s, you kind of know about it, right? It's kind of something that you're aware of. Um, but it's not something that's terribly accessible. It, it, it has changed fundamentally because of indoor climbing walls. Um, but even now, getting outside, you, you kind of need someone to, to take you under the wing. We, it, it's all very informal in climbing, but 
you kind of need a mentor. You need someone to, to literally teach you the ropes. Um, and this friend of my dad's, his name was Malcolm Cundy, uh, Pike. He took us out and, uh, and my dad and I kind of started climbing together. So literally the first time we roped up was, was together. And then this guy, Malcolm, really took us under his wing. And for many weekends over um, a few years, we, we went out until dad and I kind of knew enough to, to go out and, and do it on our own. Uh, and this guy, Pike, was also, he was kind of mates with people like Doug Scott and this whole generation of kind of 70s and 80s climbers. There was a real progressive scene in, in the UK. It was kind of through the late 60s, 70s and into the 80s of, of British climbers and alpinists who were really sort of pushing the envelope on, on what was possible on the steepest walls and the biggest cliffs and the biggest mountains in the world. And, and Malcolm was kind of... Uh, he was never one of the kind of A-listers, but he was part of that crew. Um, and there's a real kind of, climbing's always had this, you know, more than just a sport thing. It's like a lifestyle. It's a, a kind of, well, how can I put it? It's a, a kind of an identity thing and not just the activity of climbing, but the social side to it and, and the whole scene. And particularly that era, and it, and it carried over, was, was, was pretty hardcore. These people were hard living, quite often short living, um, gnarly dudes who did all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, didn't make it out of the 80s, basically. Uh, and this guy, Malcolm, was kind of on that scene. So he had all these amazing stories of all this stuff they got up to in all these crazy places, which when you're a 10-year-old kid, I mean, I'd never heard of Yosemite. I'd never heard of the, you know, the Karakoram. I'd never heard of Baffin Island. Many of the listeners won't have heard of those places. I mean, a lot of people will have heard of Yosemite, um, which is a national park in California. Um, but these are the places with the tallest cliffs in the world. They just, you know, they're just unreal places. They look like something out of Lord of the Rings. And uh, and I remember thinking, shit, that is what I want to do. I want to go and check these places out and go on these crazy adventures. Really early in life, I kind of knew that was what I wanted. I mean, I know that you, again, just from reading your your long bio on your website and stuff you were um you were, you'd climbed um the old man of hoy isn't it um six months after you started um after you started climbing i mean clearly that's not you've not achieved that because of your experience because you're really young and you haven't really experienced much but do you think that you do you ha- you just had a really natural ability very young or is is it is it a different attitude to towards climbing why do, why do you think that you um you were able to sort of accelerate quite fast you know, they talk about the myth of talent, but I kind of believe that some people are certainly more adept than others at, at certain disciplines. And you're very lucky if you find something in life that you're both good at and into. And if you find it early in life, you're really onto a winner. Uh, and yeah, I think I naturally took to climbing very well, probably because I'm so shit at football. I'm really crap at team sports. Uh, I was quite a late developer. So I was really, um, I was like the smallest kid in the class. And I was never much one for team sports and school stuff. Um, but then when I found climbing, I immediately physically uh, took to it. And then I think also, like I've always really enjoyed the um, the fast track to adventure that it gives you. I've always been an adventurous spirit. Even when I was tiny, I'd always be out exploring in the woods and climbing to higher in the trees than anybody else. And And still now, the thing I love most about rock climbing is, you know, it's a real fast track to, to the hardcore. You, you don't have to quest into the depths of the Amazon for months at a time. You don't have to ski across Antarctica. You just have to go, you know, 10 meters, like 30 feet up a vertical cliff. 
and you're in deep. There are real consequences to their, your actions. There's no one holding your hand. And one of the really cool things about climbing still now is that it's, it's really unregulated. You know, it's not like skydiving where you have to have a ticket to do anything and or scuba diving where you've got to jump through hoops and get boxes signed and all this bollocks. In, in climbing, you, you're totally free to go out to any number of cliffs that we have all over this country and all over the world and set off up it and, and fall off and break both your legs. You know, you don't have to have any qualifications. You, you don't legally or technically have to know what you're doing, but it self-regulates extremely well because humans are inherently scared of heights. It's, we just are. It's really dangerous. You know, like I say, you only have to go up a stepladder. Once you get more than 10 feet, three, four meters off the ground, it's going to hurt. And once you get 10 meters off the ground, it's going to change your life. Uh, and once you get to 20 meters, you're probably going to die if, if you fall off. Um, so it self-regulates incredibly well. And so it's very rare that you get complete beginners going out and, and getting themselves into situations because it's terrifying. You know, you start going up. Um, but then once you learn you know, the physical side to it, how to climb things, and also the, the psychological and, and the skill side to it, a massive part of the game is figuring out how to do extremely dangerous stuff really safely um so you know all the kit and all all the tricks that we use to try and limit the risk of something which is inherently dangerous to to make it something that you can do all the time um with an acceptable level of of risk and and i really like how i could drive down the road 20 minutes and 20 minutes later i could be like having a real adventure which it's kind of rare to find such fast track to 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 the real deal I totally agree with what you're saying, actually. I mean, it led on to something that I was going to mention later on, but, I mean, my sort of version of adventure that I've clumsily stumbled into is sort of jungle exploration, and I was thinking, you know, the times in my life where I've had life-threatening situations are when you've gone into a into a tribe, perhaps, and the, the tribal chief has, you know, not taken well to you, and you're really having to use your wits to, like, think outside the box and how, try how to win him round, and you're reading all of his gestures and stuff like that. But the majority of those expeditions... one. They're extraordinarily long normally, but also uh, the majority of them are, um, are so drawn out. And you're having these tiny little intense moments of, of periods of time when, you know, the shit is hitting the fan and you're having to use all your wits. But but climbing is something where you're doing that all the time, isn't it? And and, and so I think it did. Bizarrely, I, in researching you in order to do this podcast, it made me realise... I should have given climbing a go when I was younger, really, because I think it's it's it just did seem to me this uh, this vehicle for, I suppose, condensing a lot of um, a lot of very sort of uh, intense moments where you're invariably you're learning about yourself, aren't you? And you're stretching and you're growing yourself into into a short period of time. Yeah, it's never too late, Ed. We'll have to get out when. Uh, when I'll, <laughs> Mate, I think it might be a bit too late for me. Well, no, I think you're right. It's kind of it's like a, a concentrated adventure, you know. I think. Um, Part of the reason we've always got along is that I I, I love adventurous experiences and I, I quite like it when it gets serious. I enjoy dabbling, fun stuff as well, but I do like it when situations get more serious. And uh, you know, climbing is is good for that. But also, it, as someone who's spent my entire adult life and a big chunk of my childhood kind of revolving around climbing, it's quite difficult to talk about it as as one activity as as one sport it's um it's such a broad church and you know this year well next year now but climbing's in the olympics for the first time which is kind of a bit of a watershed moment because now it's 
going into the category of sport, um, you know, most people are, I, I, I'm not against climbing becoming an Olympic sport, but I'm one of the few voices that actually thinks, well, do you know what? It's not all good. The, uh, you know, for me, it's about so much more than being an athlete and human performance and winning medals and the kind of spectacle of, of the games. You know, climbing has really fundamentally changed because of indoor climbing walls. It's brought it to a, an urban audience. So there's, which is really positive. It means, you know, most people now live in cities. The vast majority of the British population, I think it's 80% of the British population live in an urban environment. And traditionally rock climbing is, you know, there are the odd exception, but most of the climbing areas in the UK tend to be in, in remote, mountainous, rural areas. Uh, so climbing walls are fantastic. It gives people the opportunity to enjoy climbing um, in the city. But what it's also done, which you know, is a bit less cool is, uh, it's turned it into sport. It's, it's no longer this kind of counterculture. It can be, but it it hasn't got that risk, that gritty adventure, um, element. And that is still there, obviously. And some people do make that, that journey. But for me, it's, it's that adventurous side to it, which I really love. It's getting up into the hills. It's being attacked by giant seagulls on sea stacks. It's, it's kind of the getting caught out in storms. Just last week, I had a minor epic um, on a massive face called the South Face of the Marmalada in the in the Dolomites. Uh, a, a mate and I, long story cut short, massively underestimated this route. We had a small window in the weather, so we, we tried to climb this giant thing, which you would normally walk in one day and then probably spend two days climbing it. And we walked in and climbed it in one session, and it got dark more than a 1,000 feet from the top. We didn't have anything with us at all, no bivy gear, barely even a jacket. We did have head torches, thank God. Um, but I love that, you know, and I, and I found myself in the middle of the night. It was surprisingly cold. It's a three and a half thousand meter mountain. Uh, my hands were freezing. We were, we were like, our backs were against the wall. We were still laughing and having fun, but we were on the edge of like a really serious situation. You can't get down from up there. It was below zero. So you're going to, you probably wouldn't get hypothermia, but you need to find a ledge at the very, you know, if you're hanging in your harness with no warm jacket. Um, but we just kept going, climbing with our head torches. And, and I noticed at one point, and I said to my mate Waldo, you know, you know this, I, I love this shit. This is what it's all about. When you're really in deep and you've, you've got to get out, you're kind of pitting yourself against nature. And it, you would never get yourself into a really difficult situation on purpose. Like we didn't intend to get benighted. We thought we'd be a bit quicker. Um, but once you're in, it's it's really fun trying to get yourself out. <laughs> I get it. I mean, I do. I totally understand that in terms of the sort of um, the sort of lure of dangerous things. But I don't. I, why do you think that is? What What do you think? I mean, I totally agree. Climbing indoor climbing on a climbing wall doesn't sound that interesting, and yet you know, so suddenly if if your life is in your hands, it it matters all that much more, doesn't it? And there's consequences of it. But have you ever worked out why why you're drawn to that? Um, no, I have thought about it and, uh, I, I've never come up with, uh, I mean, it is, it's really, it doesn't make any sense. Climbing is a really good example of, um, you know, that kind of desire, you know, to court danger, to play with risk. Um, it, it's so pointless, it, especially when you go on these big expeditions to climb some big gnarly mountain somewhere, you know, there's no pot of gold at the top. There's no dancing girls or prizes. It's, there's nothing there. You, you go through a real ordeal where you really risk your life a lot. You, sometimes you're in 
you know, life-threatening situations for days and weeks on end to get to the top of something. And then you've just got to get back down again. You know, there's nothing there. There's no prize. It costs a lot of money and time. And it, if you try to rationalize it, there really is no good answer. There's, you, know, you can talk about goal setting and about fulfilling your potential and, uh, and, and striving for, to further advance your, your, your own path. But again, once you're like, well, gosh, well, you could do something that doesn't mean you're going to die, especially as a father. Now I've got two little kids and, you know, quite a few of my mates have died in, in accidents in the mountains. Um, and some of them have been fathers. And that definitely made me think about this a lot deeper. Uh, and ultimately, the only sort of thing I can come up with, which I haven't sort of developed my thoughts on this too deeply, I've read a little bit around it, but there's got to be some sort of kind of warrior instinct to it. There's, there's got to be some fundamental genetic makeup, largely male, although not exclusively, um, that is a desire to put yourself in harm's way. And in the past, in the, you know, on a sort of evolutionary scale, it's not distant past when you know, we were warriors and, and all men pretty much, uh, maybe there'd be the odd generation here or there that skipped it, but throughout history, men would have been killing each other with axes and swords. And that happened a lot um, until modern history. And, uh, and, you know, not everyone had to fight, but there were times when wherever you were in the world, you would have to fight, or certain people in the community would. Uh, and some people are more drawn to that than others. And I'm not a fighter at all. I'm, I would, I'm definitely not a, a scrapper. I, I don't like violence. Uh, but I think, you know, that, that draw to danger, that, that kind of desire to express yourself in a situation where you could die or get hurt for no good reason i can't think of any other reason why we do it yeah i mean i think my again i haven't gone into it too deeply but i suppose my my take on it is it's a little bit of a two fingers up to a quite a sort of um sterile life i suppose um you know it, it's you know you do go through life being able to open the fridge and get food whenever you want it and unless you're very very unfortunate you know life kind of happens and you don't have to go to extremes in order to make it happen and and yeah putting yourself in those sort of situations is potentially how life used to be you know when when everything did have a bigger consequence where you didn't have a nice safe house to live in I mean actually one of the things I learned when I was doing 60 days sleeping on the streets for channel four was that's such a privilege you know going back to a home every night and, and you know have, having all of the the things that we all take for granted suddenly you haven't got that and you're in this sort of survival state and that in a weird way it's exciting I mean I'm, I'm not being too flippant about it I sort of played around with it in terms of in terms of my own experience and but you know when when the consequences of your actions are that you know you're going to die basically then 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 it's just a, a far more visceral form of life isn't it yeah, definitely. I agree with what you're saying about, you know, part of the reason I enjoy, I've kind of gotten really into bigger expeditions in the last sort of 10 years, really. I really get a kick out of going to super remote places where no one ever goes, where no one's coming to help if anything goes wrong. Um, and still doing badass shit when you're there, you know, like climbing hard stuff that stuff, stuff that would be pretty extreme if it was a, in an accessible place. You, you so you're kind of marrying the two things together you're taking hardcore adventure sport to the most remote places in the world and i i agree that a, a big part of the draw to that is just to to get away from the easy life you're dead right people don't realize how easy life is with your central heat and then your seat belt and your 
power steering and you know it's just so life uh, as a as a modern western person is is i mean we live like kings lived from a few generations ago we live better than the kings did and queens from from 150 years ago they couldn't travel the world they couldn't eat fresh tropical fruit they couldn't they didn't have a hot bath every night you know it's it, we really have made our lives so extremely comfortable that i think there's a an urge to get away from that um not all the time you know as, as you well know that one of the best things about being out for weeks or months is is coming back and you know the first hot shower i absolutely love that uh, it, it's really good when you get into a proper it's always shit when it's some jackass town in the middle of nowhere and you get your first shower and it's some dribbling little cold tap i had that recently and it's so disappointing it's so nice when you get into like a proper you know modern powerful shower and i always spend ages just soaking that up uh, and remembering how you know it's that contrast it's the that gives you the definition it's going without that makes you appreciate having it and also on that front, it's definitely true what you say, because you don't meet many people from developing countries who, who have hard lives, who are from the, the, the lower pyramid of, of society. Um, they're not into extreme sports. You know, their lives are hard enough, just getting enough to eat, keeping their families safe, dealing with the basics of life um, is, is extreme enough. So, you know, you never meet people from, from the bottom end of society intentionally surfing big waves or soloing cliffs it's, it's not something that you do if, unless you have the privilege of the choice yeah no i agree with that yeah no this is seeking out hardship is a kind of middle class privilege isn't it yeah yeah it is definitely and like mountain climbing really only became a thing in the mid 19th century it's you know there's people who have written about it it's like because climbing is a really good example of that choosing hardship for no reason um you know you're cold you're tired uh, you push yourself really difficult into really difficult, dangerous situations for no kind of tangible result. And until like the middle of the 19th century, the 1850s ish, people avoided mountains. They only went there for looking for crystals or gold or, you know, whatever hunting. It was very rare that people went into the mountains for, for shits and giggles. Um, and then there was kind of this change and originally it was kind of it was very much an upper class activity um it was british upper classes the british aristocracy going out to switzerland and and climbing mountains and i'm sure it's partly because it was the beginning of the age of abundance people had access to so much food and water and wealth that they uh, they didn't know what to do with themselves um so yeah they were into the horse racing they were into smoking cigars and drinking beer and then all of a sudden climbing mountains became a thing and then as you know the world got wealthier and and the the abundance spread it became more popular into the middle of the and it didn't really become a an everyman activity until the middle of the 20th century um when you know even certainly in the uk even the working classes had disposable income and time and uh, and were able to to like go and do dangerous stuff for no good reason um Funny enough, there was a real character. He, he died this year, a guy called Joe Brown, who was uh, one of the best climbers in the world. And uh, he and, uh, and a long-term partner of his called Don Willens really influenced world mountaineering and climbing a lot. And they, he was very much a working-class plumber from Manchester um, who was so talented and so good at climbing that he, he was kind of adopted by the, 
the establishment because he was just so much better than everybody else. Uh, and he had an amazing life climbing all this amazing stuff, including the first ascent of Kanchenchunga, which is widely regarded as the most technically difficult of the, of the really big mountains, of the 8,000-meter mountains. Um, he just died a few months ago, which, uh, which is uh, yeah, kind of an end of an era, really. He, he, he and that generation of the late, the post-war generation, when they really sort of kind of broke the glass ceiling a little bit on, on climbing and really uh, did some amazing stuff. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to talk a little bit more about you, I suppose, now, because we've talked quite generally about different stuff. But um, you moved to Wales at the age of about 17. Was that was that specifically because there were loads of climbing areas there? Yeah, North Wales is probably the best climbing area in, uh, in the UK for concentration of rock types. Uh, and in that era, the mid-90s, I was actually a bit younger than that. I, I left home when I was 15. My, my birthday is late in the academic year, and uh, I spent a summer after my GCSEs in Wales, living in a tent by myself, made friends with a load of people who were slightly older than me, kind of university students. And, uh, and also that was kind of the end of this Dolly generation. It was, it was a, some really funny history in, in, in British climbing. There was, they talk about Margaret Thatcher being the great patron of, uh, of the progress of British climbing because in the mid 80s and into the early 90s, there was a whole generation of people who were, who were on the Dole who were signing on and just going climbing full-time, pretty much living in squats. No one had any money. The odd person had a car, but they got really good at climbing. And, and in that period, the, the standard of British climbing skyrocketed. There was I was literally going to ask you how you paid for it all. And was that it? You, like the, the whole generation of guys on the Well, dock? I was a bit late for that, basically. I kind of, it was, it, this is 1995. So this is kind of the end of the, the long Tory innings. Um, that, you know, the, the depths of the 80s recession, it was the late 80s, right? It was kind of 86 to kind of 92 was that era. And there were full dregs of it when I was around. Um, but yeah, my aspiration was to kind of sign on and go climbing all the time. <laughs> and, uh, and this was before the kind of late 90s boom um, that, that lasted until 2008. But, you know, I also realized in the back of my mind that, you know, this is kind of, if you think back to the mid-90s, that snowboarding kind of came out of nowhere um, and became huge. It was, it was sort of at least the birth of the term extreme sports. I don't remember anyone talking about extreme sports when I was a little kid. And then when I was a teenager... 
it came was like a thing and uh and i kind of very early i i got sponsored really early in life i used to get bits and pieces of kit off people because i was good uh, and i was sponsored by a company called animal they're still around now but back then they used to make really cool they originally started making watch straps yeah and then they you know they had one of them was a graphic designer one of them was a an engineer um, and they grew this business and they were in the snowboarding sector and they had this and they were surfing as well they had this cool office down in Weymouth and I remember going to visit when I was a teenager um, and they were super cool guys you know there's bottles of tequila all over the office and um, big party crew loads of professional snowboarders professional surfers hanging out and uh, and everybody living the dream and I remember hanging out with these snowboarders who were you know four or five years older than me and seeing their careers and their trajectory I remember thinking well maybe I could try and position myself as like an extreme sports athlete rather than a traditional climber or a mountaineer because it's a bit cooler it's a bit you know more edgy um and i could kind of see the potential that climbing hard as you know as the original extreme sport um so yeah although when i moved to wales as a, as a teenager you know i just wanted to go climbing all the time uh, and i didn't you don't need a lot of money to go climbing you know if you live in a squat or you live in a tent or you live in a cave once you've got your climbing gear you really can live it's like when you go on a trip, you know, you, you, you eat pasta cooked on the stove. It's extremely low overheads uh, in terms of finance. Um, so you don't need a lot. But in the back of my mind, I thought, well, you know, I think potentially there were a few professional climbers around in the, in the 80s, a few more in the 90s, but really only a handful. But I could kind of see the potential for a much bigger industry. Um, and uh, I didn't really want to be skint forever, um, but I wanted to be able to to come up with a way of funding the lifestyle that I wanted to lead, which was to go climbing all the time and go climbing crazy stuff in crazy places. Yeah. So you were quite self-aware that, that you wanted to be able to market yourself because the main income that you could see that was available was sponsorship, basically. Yeah. Um, and that's the best way I could see of, you know, it's certainly for the initial part of my career. Um, I always think it's weird calling it that, but for the first 10 years, it was always just a means to an end. How can I fund going climbing all the time? Um, and as I started to, as my horizon started to broaden and beyond, you know, the UK into accessible places and then to more inaccessible places, how can I fund this? How, you know, I'm not from a wealthy background. My parents live in rented accommodation and um, there's no way I've got the support from them to uh, to do anything. I've got to make it happen on my own. And, you know, other ways of doing it, you work and you save up. But then if you, a lot of my friends uh, went into rope access, you know, either offshore or, or onshore. A lot of people work on oil rigs, um, on the ropes. Uh, and it's pretty well paid. It used to be really well paid. And they'll work on site or offshore for three weeks or sometimes three months, save up a load of money and then go and do stuff. But then you're not out and about doing stuff. It's, um, that's probably what I would have reverted to if my uh, primary plan hadn't worked out. But here I am 25 years later and it still seems to be going okay somehow. Mate, it's worked. I mean, I, you are the only climber that I know of even. You know, you obviously mentioned people like Joe Brown. I've only heard of him because hasn't got a shop. Um, it's yeah. called Joe Brown. Yeah, that's the only reason I know his name. And so I think, therefore, it did work. I mean, I remember when I walked the Amazon, I think one of the most 
savvy things I did was I managed to convince this publicist to do two and a half years of publicity work for free. And like no one was employing publicists. And I think genuinely, you know, that would have just been another expedition with somebody who packed their work sack and walked down a river if I hadn't. It, it's, I think the success doesn't necessarily come from the um, the activity itself. Sometimes it's 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 how you present it, isn't it? Nobody knows, nobody cares, right? Absolutely. If you if you hadn't have if people hadn't have known about it, it, yeah, they wouldn't have been interested, and I'm sure you wouldn't be uh, doing as much stuff as you are in the in the public field. And um, so so it was it was sponsors that paid for you to go to Yosemite. Was it the first time when you? Um... Yeah, very modest sponsorship deals. Um, and with Berghaus, who I'm still working with today. Uh, and in the early days, it was a really small amount of money. But as I said, you don't need very much. For a long time, my biggest overheads in life were were flights, um, especially intercontinentally. You know, if you go into North America, um, that was the single biggest outgoing in, in my life. Because uh, once you get there, especially somewhere like California, the, uh, the weather's so bloody good. It's so much easier to live in California than it is in in North Wales. I tell you, it never bloody rains. And so, you know, for a thousand quid, I could spend three months, including flights, in in America. Uh, and, and I did that for many years. Um, the best season for climbing in Yosemite is kind of the autumn, September, October. So Yosemite is, it is you know, we talk about it, it is the mecca of climbing. It's... <laughs> It's this amazing, amazing place. It's a famous national park, but from a climbing perspective, there's one cliff in particular called El Capitan, which is a thousand meters tall, three thousand feet tall vertical cliff that comes right out of this stunningly beautiful valley. It's one of the most Mother Nature's finest creation. I've been to a lot of epic places since, and you know, there's eight million tourists a year drive through on the loop, but I wouldn't recommend anyone goes to see this place. It's just, it is Mother Nature's finest work. Uh, and from a climbing perspective, it's always been a very influential place throughout the history of rock climbing. It's just so in your face, so big, so hard, uh, and so impressive. And, you know, if you wanted to compare it to the, it's not competition-based, but it's like the World Cup or it's like the Wimbledon or, or whatever. It's kind of, it happens there. And, uh and I first went there in 1998 as a teenager. I kind of was building a bit of a reputation over here in the UK. I knew I was good, um, but I certainly, you know, I wasn't known internationally. I hadn't really done much beyond the, uh, the quite small niche of the, the kind of hard end of the dangerous spectrum in the UK, which tend to be short. We talk about single pitch. That means one rope length up to 60 meters, 200 feet. You know, El Cap is 3,000 feet. It's a thousand meters. It's thirty rope lengths, um, which is just a scale that when you first arrive, when you're used to small stuff, you, I mean, you cannot imagine it. You, you look up at this thing and you can't see people, and you go, "No, no, no! Check out! There's a check her out! Check her out!" And then your eyes like focus on this literally smaller than an ant little dot, and then it sort of dawns on you the scale of what you're looking at. It's you know, it's unbelievably big. It's three times the height of the Shard in London. The mass of it, like the Great Pyramid of Giza, you wouldn't even see it. It, It's vastly bigger than anything that humans have ever built. Uh, And it's incredibly intimidating. But essentially what happened is my my friend, we spent two months there uh, and we spent a month kind of getting used to the place, used to the style. And more importantly than that, hanging out with the local badasses and 
it, there's this amazing campsite where everyone hangs out and um it, and they were very inviting and we were super motivated and they you know a lot of it is is a psychological journey as much as a physical one to to get your head around how you climb these giant cliffs and there are a few tricks and skills involved uh, but fundamentally patch and i had the kind of talent and the motivation and towards the end of the trip we decided to attempt to climb el capitan which gets done a lot but the vast majority of climbing el cap is is called aid climbing which it's kind of known you don't really do it other than on really big cliffs now but aid climbing is simply put it's when you use the ropes and all the hardware that you know the, the carabiners and the jangly bits that you see that climbers have but you use it directly so you place a piece of gear into the rock and then you hang on it in your harness and you have these little rope ladders called etriers and you clip in and you climb your little rope ladders and and you sort of manufacture your way up the cliff. It's very slow um, and it's it's very artificial. Free climbing is not climbing without ropes. It's a, it's a bit of a bad name really because everyone always assumes that free climbing is climbing without ropes. That's free soloing or soloing is when you use no ropes at all. Free climbing is what you think of when you think of rock climbing. If you ever go to a climbing wall or if you ever think of someone climbing up a cliff, we still use ropes, but they're just to catch you if you fall. They're just a safety aid. They're not like an ascension aid. So you climb it using largely your fingers and your toes, but anything else as well. Um, But if you pull on the gear or you weight the rope, it doesn't class as a free ascent. So free climbing is climbing. If you think of someone going rock climbing, they're free climbing. Aid climbing is when you kind of cheat. And in 1998, when I first went to Yosemite, like 999 out of a thousand ascents of El Cap had been aid. There'd been a handful of free ascents and they'd all been by the kind of top world climbers with multiple weeks and months of effort. Uh, and to cut a long story short, Patch and I went to this route that had recently been opened by two of the most famous climbers in the world, Alex and Thomas Huber, these Bavarian muscle men who, who'd spent a season preparing this climb and then done it to much acclaim. And literally a week after they did it, they gave us a, a map, we call it a topo, um, and they said, you should go and try it. And so we did. And uh, and I did it, well, I fell off once, um, but other than that, I did it first go we we call it on site which is kind of a way of climbing it's kind of the purest way of climbing because you know you only ever get one chance you either do it first go or you didn't do it first go and then you can practice and rehearse it but on site climbing is kind of another level because you you, know, you only ever get one chance and to do a climb it's called el nino which means the boy um quite aptly to do a big massive climb like that it's 32 rope lengths um, on the most famous cliff in the world at a very high standard it's a it's a hard route um it's pretty dangerous as well was kind of an amazing experience and, and it really massively launched my career um on the, on the global stage and still now rates as one of the you know the cleanest ever ascents of of the world's most famous cliff so it was a massive thing for me and I, um and a hugely formative experience both professionally and you know, personally, I, I've never quite seen any of the British rocks in the same way since. That, like, just the magnitude of, of Yosemite and this big wall climbing. You know, you, I got back to the, I remember getting back to Wales and thinking, oh my God, like these cliffs are so small. <laughs> <laughs> it, it 
trying to ruin my motivation a little bit for some of the really hard, gnarly climbing. I don't really want to break both my legs on that pity little thing there because I now my kind of horizons have been broadened. The, the scale has got bigger. And and that was 1998. So how long ago was that? It's a long time ago, isn't it? So yeah, so for pretty much 22 years now, that free climbing big walls has been it's it's kind of been the guiding light in my life. That's what I've spent most of my life doing is going to the, the biggest cliffs in the world and, and trying to climb them without cheating. And would it be fair to say then, if that, was, if that was, I mean, already at the age of 18, you're doing something on a world stage, which is at that high level, and then you're coming back home and slightly disillusioned with the, the crags in Wales, wherever they are. And um, would that be one of the reasons why you um, were involved in pioneering, what do you call it, para-alpinism? Para-alpinism. There's a few of these places that are popular with base jumpers. Um, I mean, base jumping, people jump off buildings, bridges, aerials. But for me, it was always about jumping off cliffs. And I'd come across a couple of places, one place in particular in Norway, where there's a giant cliff, where there's way more base jumpers than, than climbers. And we did some first ascents on there back then, actually, in the late 90s. And there was people flying past all the time. And we were staying in the same campground. We actually rescued a guy who got stuck on the cliff. And I remember thinking, wow, this is awesome. I want, I want to try that. Um, but you need to learn to skydive first. And uh, skydiving is a rich man's game. You know, It wasn't until kind of my mid-20s that I had any money at all. And, uh, and one of the first things I did as soon as I had a spare 2,000 quid was, was learn how to skydive and, and get the uh, the basic skills that you need to, to be able to base jump with a acceptable degree of safety. And then it seemed on paper, in principle, it's such an obvious thing to climb up a giant cliff. And then instead of spending days or hours, you know, abseiling back down on the ropes, um, just jump off and fly down and, and be down in 30 seconds or, or in two minutes, including the canopy ride, which I did quite successfully. Although in practice, you know, so para-alpinism is, is climbing up something and, and using a parachute to get down. You can do it with paraglider as well, but it's more exciting with a base rig. Um, but in reality, it's way more difficult and complicated than it sounds. It just sounds so easy. You climb up the cliff with the parachute, you jump off. Awesome, you know, back in time for team medals. But so many times, like, there was more times it was unsuccessful than it was successful. So, so many times you, you carry... You know, the smallest base rig, rig is the kind of parachute in its rucksack. Um, and they weigh about five kilos, four and a half kilos. Um, but it's kind of a pain in the ass getting it up with you. Four kilos is quite a lot in climbing terms. So, you you know, you've got to bring this thing up. Hopefully your mate's a jumper too. He brings his up. So you've got nearly 10 kilos of excess equipment, which is pretty significant. That changes things. And you can wear it. But then if there's any sort of climbing that involves using your body, if you have to get inside, a crack and you know parachutes are quite delicate things and you don't want to mess the pack job up so that gets awkward so then you have to put it in a bag and drag it so it's a pain in the ass getting the the rigs to the top and then so many occasions you get to the top and it's either too windy or the cloud comes in or there's some condition hazard which means it's not safe to jump so you sit there for an hour or you sit there all night and then it's still cloudy and you're like bollocks now we're going to have to abseil down anyway so what we've done is take our parachutes for a walk uh, and then conversely if you can jump you've got to get your climbing gear down and you can't I was going really to ask carry that, yeah how'd you get it all down well 
it depends on kind of how much you've got and, and what you've done. If you can carry a bit of cargo, I, I did have a few successful uh, missions where we, um, you can fit quite a lot down your pants. These things called tracking pants are like big baggy pants. You can fit a rope, um, you coil it, but then you have like half of it down one leg, half of it down the other. You can fit a rope and half a rack in your pants, basically. And there's a bit of cargo space down your, down your chin because obviously you can't have stuff flapping around you can't have things hanging off you because it you have to be pretty sort of uh, aerodynamic missile when you when you're falling because otherwise the the lines can get tangled on stuff when you deploy um so yeah we had a few missions where we managed to jump with everything or you can throw it off um on some cliffs you can throw it with a with a little drogue shoot um, and find it uh or sometimes if one of the guys isn't a uh, a jumper, they can carry stuff. But we had a few successful missions where it went right and we climbed up and jumped off. And uh, and it, it's very rewarding. Um, but then there was a bad scene, like base jumping exploded in popularity about 10 years ago. Uh, and wingsuits got really good. And, and everyone started flying more and more aggressively and taking more and more dangerous lines down the mountain. Proximity flying, it's called. I'm sure you've seen it. And it's actually really easy. It's that's the kind of problem with wingsuit proximity flying is it's it's not very hard to be doing something which is like something out of a computer game. You know, remember the Star Wars? Uh, what is it where they're going to blow up the Death Star and they're flying in the canyon in the what they call the X-wing fighters? Yeah, that's what it's like. It's that, um, and you can do that. And it's utterly amazing, but it's zero margin for error. It's super, super high consequence. And uh, and loads of my mates died in a short period. I mean, two or three close friends and maybe at least half a dozen, you know, not my best mates, but people who I was friendly with, who I'd speak to now and again. Uh, and then there was another 30 or 40 people who I kind of knew in passing that, that died in the space for about four years. And when one of my best mates died, it was right around when my first child was born. I kind of thought, oh, reluctantly, I think I'm going to have to knock this uh, game on the head for a little while because um, you can do it safely. Um, but it's so easy not to. As soon as you kind of, if you stick to really safe stuff and you open high and you stick to like doing it safely, in my opinion, it's acceptably safe. However, it's, it gets boring. <laughs> you, you, you start pulling low, you start flying closer to stuff. Kind of the draw of it in the first place is how exciting and dangerous it is. And if you only stick to the kind of pedestrian end of the spectrum, um, you get bored. And the nature of the beast is that the people who are attracted to it in the first place are the kind of people who want to push it. Um, and you kind of can't do that. Or you can, but the, the risk is so high. Um, I've still got one of my rigs. It's right here, actually. And I still pack it. Like every few months, I'll unpack it and repack it just so I don't lose the knowledge. And uh, and when the kids are a bit bigger, and I think now I'm sort of getting to the stage in life where I could do it without, you know, get, getting on the slippery slope and taking more and more aggressive lines, just stick to the kind of flat and stable, big and, big and safe. Because um, there's still a few things I'd like to jump off that I'm not quite willing to accept. It isn't going to happen. <laughs> Would you let Freya and uh, Jackson do it? Good question. I, I certainly wouldn't encourage it. But, you know, like with all this stuff, if they 
they can they can do whatever they want. They just have to go about it in in the right way. And I think with dangerous games, um, it's really important to go about them in the in the safest possible way. It it, it sounds like a massive kind of cliche, but the more dangerous it is, the more careful you have to be. And uh, and part of the reason that you know I'm still standing is because. I've kind of made my mistakes and I've, I've figured out how you can do stuff which most people would think is absurdly in, in unjustifiably dangerous. You can do it with kind of a, a fairly casual demeanor if you go about it in the right way. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think that has, that, that has changed your attitude towards risk in, in general? I mean, I remember we did a talk together, didn't we, at the RGS just after, I think, when your one of your close friends had died um, doing it, and you said a, you gave a very powerful, um, you know, talk about the reality of taking risks at the end of the day. And it was, it, I remember following you, and I'd been slightly irked by the, the sort of um, slightly, I felt that the evening was slightly celebrating adventure in kind of a, kind of a flippant manner. And so I, I did one about death, um, and I remember um, talking to you about it. But do you think since that? That talk that you gave then, you've you have taken less risks and you have you have um, looked at these sort of things differently. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, I think I never had a death wish. I never set out to have an accident. Um, but after Stanley died, and I mean, it was like literally my daughter was six months old and his wife was seven months pregnant. So the last time I spoke to him, it was, he was really gripped about becoming a dad. And I was like, don't worry, man, you'll, you know, as soon as you meet your child, you'll fall in love. And it's, and, and then two weeks later, he, uh, he died doing something extremely dangerous. Um, and it definitely, that definitely affected me massively. I'd say that Stanley's death affected me more than Freya's birth. Um, because, you know, you don't become a new man as soon as you become a father, you're still the same person. Uh, and you still have the same kind of desires and and aspirations, um, but those two things at the same time definitely definitely knocked me. Um, and so I suppose I mean I haven't based jumped since, but you know in the last few years I've I've done some more extreme, well, the most extreme expeditions I've ever done. I've done some really kind of super gnarly stuff where you're in really serious situations for very long periods of time. Most people would consider it very high risk and uh but i've i think with the there's less kind of objective hazard less you know it would be ridiculous to say that it's dangerous doing this stuff but i think with the benefit of experience and with kind of very subtle and educated um objectives you can you can massively limit the risk i mean the most dangerous thing in mountains is is, is snow it's wandering around underneath snow and ice and seracs you know glaciers coming off cliffs um that fall uh, and avalanches and and that's a really difficult risk to control especially serac collapses because they're just it's not it's not because of the snowpack it's not because of the time of day they can influence it but ultimately it's you know sometimes it falls down and if it falls down when you're under it you're dead um that's something I try to avoid doing. Although sometimes, you know, if you want to get up that mountain, you've got to be in that bowling alley for a while. Um, but I do try to steer away from that these days. Uh, so yeah, to try to be in more controllable risks. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, t- totally. I feel. I feel. I mean, I feel the same way. I mean, but I do. I do also 
recognise that, I mean, you and especially, but me too, have have um, sort of owe a lot in our lives to taking risks and that, mm. you know, it would be wrong to suddenly batten down the hatches and, 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 and obviously uh, it kind of leads nicely into your summer holiday, really, but it would be it would be wrong to wrap your kids in cotton wool and protect them and go, no, nothing's going to happen to you because I've suddenly realised that I'm actually scared of you guys dying or, or me dying. And and then you think, well, I owe everything in life to taking risks, you know. I, I from being reckless sometimes, um, but but in latter days, considered risks, you know, that are managed and stuff. But it is important, isn't it? And I think I think it's also important to, I mean, which does lead me very neatly into your summer holiday. It, it, important to have in your in your children's life as well, isn't it? Absolutely, and you know, just on that front, I think even risk aside. You know, I think the best thing you can do as a parent is is inspire your children uh, to have the best life they can possibly have, to dream and to have great ideas and ambitions and to try to realise them and, and not be too sad if they don't. You know, be willing to fail, but be willing to try and to have great dreams. And and I, I've always had great dreams and I've and I've had the privilege of, of living them and to just stop doing that. Oh, OK, I'm a parent now. I'm going to get a normal job close by i'm not going to go away on long trips i'm not going to take risks uh because i've got dependence which is kind of even in our society that's kind of what's expected is yeah. not to be a good role model because you're closing the door on your own aspirations and dreams and you want to lead by example so if i want my own kids to dream big and live amazing lives then why would i stop living my dream and <laughs> certainly you have to temper it and balance it because you know, not least of all, I, I want to spend time with my kids. I don't want to be away all the time, um, but I do want to be away some of the time, and and I and I want to continue to to, to live my dream um, and inspire them to do the same. No, I totally agree. I mean, Laura is the same as me, my wife, and I think we both had the attitude. I mean, that whole saying that you know a ship is safest in harbour, and you know it's where you return to, and your family is your harbour, but. You're not meant to stay in harbour. That's not why you build a ship, is it? And I think to stop um, doing what you're inherently good at, or what what brings in the money, or what you love, it just seems seems wrong. And and and, and as you say, a, the, a wrong example for your kids. So then, the ideal situation, which is extremely difficult to do, but um, you know, doing big missions as a family uh, is 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 really awesome. So my kids now, Freya's turned seven this summer uh, and my little boy Jackson is is four in a couple of months and my wife Jessica she's a GP but we always did loads of stuff together we're climbed all over the world and been on all kinds of adventures um so yeah this summer we uh I've had this uh we've done quite a lot of stuff with the kids camping in the backcountry spending you know a few days up to a week out which is a pain in the ass because I have to carry everything um there's this amazing mountain in uh, in the Brigadier in southern Switzerland called the, the Pisbedil. The north ridge of the Pisbedil is is one of the most amazing easy climbs in the world. It's I mean it's a proper mountain. It's an alpine summit, three thousand three hundred meters. It's a big pointy one. You know it looks like a, a big rocket ship coming out the out the earth. And it, it's the classic alpine. So you start off down in the valley. You hike for five hours up to a really beautiful. Alpine Hut, which is like a, a basic hotel, and then you go up through the the tree line to the start of the snow line. So you go past the trees, and and then there's just this incredible knife edge granite ridge that soars off into the sky for more than a thousand meters. It's massive, 
Um, but technically, I mean, it's definitely rock climbing. It's not, it's definitely not walking and it's not even scrambling. No, you, you need ropes. Most people would need ropes. You are definitely rock climbing, but it is the easier end of the, the rock climbing spectrum. And I've had my eye on it for a while. And I kind of said to my wife, I was like, what do you reckon? Do you reckon we could get the kids up here? And she was game. Um, Jackson's still small enough to be carried. She can carry him. Uh, and Freya, we've, we've done a lot. We climb indoors a lot during the winter with the kids. We climb around here in the lake. So they've really got the, the head around it. They, they know about the exposure and stuff. Um, and anyway, earlier in the summer, we went for it. And we, we did this kind of massive exposed route which is kind of not your average family out in. Um, and it went super smoothly. We got, uh, we got the, the kids up this. I mean, it's a proper mission. It's, it's definitely a, a highlight. It was an extremely memorable experience going into, into kind of my realm with, uh, with the family uh, and both of them. I mean, Freya climbed the whole thing, which is quite amazing to climb a route that long um, when you're seven. It, it keeps coming and coming and coming. Um, and Jackson, he got carried by his mum, so he kind of cheated, but uh, he's only three, you know, <laughs> and he's such a happy little chappy. He was just buzzing the whole way up. But even that, I mean, for her, extraordinary in terms of her having that in the memory banks of something that she's already achieved at that age is just extraordinary. But I think even him, just the visceral experience of what he's seeing, you know, is, I mean, we took our little boy into the jungle when, in Guyana to see his mum when she was coming down the Essequibo River when... when um, he was eight months old. And again, people are like, you're, you're crazy doing that. But it's just like, no, if you believe in a kid benefiting from a bedtime story at that age, then, you know, you know, then, then stuff is going in. He's having an experience. But if he's bombing up a river in a dugout canoe or whatever, then he's going to have an amazing experience. I think hats off to you, mate. And I thought also what was lovely was the, the comments. that uh, on every, every article that I've seen written about it, and there were quite a few picked it up, weren't they? And the, the comments are overwhelmingly positive, which is really nice. I, I was expecting a few people to be critical of, um, of you taking that risk with your family, but um, it seemed to be going in the right direction. Everyone seemed to be so supportive. So. In the end, we thought, screw it. You know, uh, I'd find this inspiring to see. And then some journal picked up on it immediately. And, uh, and, it, and it really went ridiculously huge. It was a massive story, especially in Asia. There was like Japan, Indonesia, Vietnam. It, was, it, it went viral, basically, because the pictures were great. Uh, but yeah, there was the odd person who was bagging on it, obviously, saying that we should be reported to social services. But as you say, <laughs> the vast majority of people, like more than 10 to 1, were, were all really supportive of it and um and i think a lot of people were really motivated it's, it's hard if you're into missions and adventure and doing exciting stuff that, that when you have a family it, it's hard you know it's difficult to, to keep doing it. certainly when they're really little there's a bit of a time out but um you can still do stuff and you know on that front the uh, the reason that we were able to do that is because for me it was no big deal at all i was really really within my uh, you know, comfort zone, and and for the odd person that said you must be out of your mind, it's like, well, if you, I mean, if you were to do it up there with your kids, it, it would be crazy because you're not in your field, you know, and unless you really know what you're doing in in that vertical environment, there's no way you would take young kids there. It would be completely insane. But when you are highly competent in your field, if you are going out to the jungle with your family, or you know, when you have that surplus capacity, it, it's no big deal. And we had a good strategy you know I actually had a spare carrier in the bottom of my bag and if things had gone badly wrong I would have just carried my daughter either up or down 
And um, but it was such a wonderful experience. You know, the climb was one thing, but we spent a night on this little ledge in a tiny little tent. Uh, we watched the sunrise. There was a pair of golden eagles flew past us on the summit, which is quite unusual. You know, we, they were like twenty feet away. When Frey was asked what she enjoyed the most, she said, "I got to eat Haribo's all the way." Um, <laughs> pretty strict with the sweets, but we were luring her up. So. On the one hand, I think kids don't really get what's going on. But on another level, on a deeper, longer term level, I, I think they do. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to influence them in, in some way, hopefully a positive one. All that um, we've talked about is um, essentially going outdoors. But I mean, for, for, for the listeners who have been inspired to, um, to um, try and lead a life close to, you know, what we're doing in terms of getting outside and, and doing stuff, what advice have you got? What would be the first steps in terms of... Uh, in terms of trying to have a, a life outdoors? Um, these days, climbing walls are definitely the best access. And you meet people. So if you wanted to get into climbing, I would say go to your local climbing wall, um, but get talking to the people there. Um, for, for me, the biggest influence on my climbing was, was this guy, Malcolm. Uh, and it wasn't kind of just the climbing of the rocks. It was the stories he told me about these places, about these people that were doing this this crazy stuff and and climbers are quite accommodating we we've all had mentors ourselves we've all been taken under somebody's wing at some stage so um we're quite good at kind of you know you don't want to go out with a total beginner but once you've got a, a certain level of experience it's kind of the done thing that you'll say you know i'll take you out and i'll show you some stuff um so i would say you know be try to be outgoing try to make friends with people um and then on a more general sort of ad- adventure front uh, I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, the, you don't like want to get hurt, um, but you don't have to do the dangerous side is what we've been talking about. It's what you talk about a lot, but it doesn't have to be dangerous. The, uh, you know, what I do a lot of with the kids at the moment is we, we go into the, into the hills, you know, just, just camping, just really basic camping somewhere that you have to walk to. It has to be at least couple of hours a there won't be any other dickheads there um b you won't get busted uh and c you get away from it it's just not the same if you go right by the car park you've got to go for at least two hours um because then you're out and you're, you're away somewhere and you carry all your stuff and you put some effort in cook yourself dinner and a basic kind of a basic wild camping night is a really wonderful way of of, of getting into uh, into more outdoory stuff. And on that front, I would also recommend if you are inspired to get into adventure stuff, get yourself some decent kit because a big misconception with uh, outdoor adventure is that it's about roughing it. It's about, you know, having a hard time. Um, and in the UK, you know, you want a decent tent, you want a decent sleeping bag, you want a decent air mattress. Uh, you don't have to get like hundreds of goods worth of top end stuff, but get yourself a decent that up because if you go out and it pisses down and your tent leaks and you're on a hard mattress with a crap sleeping bag you're not going to have a nice time and if you go out with the kids they're not going to have a nice time either whereas if you get yourself some half decent kit it's a lot more comfortable than people think you know you don't have to be out in in the mountains final question then um there are very few explorers who have managed to live a life completely devoid of ego but um how would you like to be remembered how would I like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered as somebody who had an extremely large amount of fun in wild places doing wild stuff. Um, 
so far in my life, I feel extremely privileged to have spent a shitload of time in, in really wild places with really wild people doing really wild stuff. And long may it continue. Mate, uh, well, I think that, that that's exactly why people sort of resonate with you. And I think you're doing an amazing job. And, um, mate, thank you so much for um, for giving us your time and coming on. And um, um, lots of love to all the family. Yeah, nice to see you, Ed. Let's try and get out and play one of these days, Jay. Well, that would be nice, yeah. Maybe under 20 metres off the floor. <laughs> this is the last episode in the current series of Dangerous Minds. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening and see you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 